Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. I'm your co-host, Richie Rump. With me, I have the other co-host, Cecil Phillip. What up, Cecil? I'm pretty good, and I am the other co-host, and I'm really excited to be bringing episode nine to you guys. You know, it's been about two months, and, you know, we're really having a lot of fun putting on this podcast for you, and, you know, we hope you guys enjoy what we've been doing so far. Yeah, it has been a lot of fun, but you know what else is a lot of fun? What's that? And that's going to conferences, bro. And in August, I hear that you're going to be speaking at one of my favorite conferences, Code on the Beach. Yeah, definitely. So, so this is going to be the third year that Code on the Beach is going on. You know, my first year, you know, I just went in as attendee. You know, my second year I spoke and, you know, this is now the third year where I'm going to be speaking again. And Richie, I hear you're speaking here too, right? This is true. I will be speaking also at Code on the Beach. Nice. And uh, yeah, man, it, you know, it's a really cool vibe. It's uh, actually right when they say it's on the beach, they ain't lying because it's like right on the beach. I mean, you just walk out the hotel and it's right there. I mean, there, there's the beach, there's the water. And it's such a different environment, and it's not one of these mega conferences. You know, it's pretty tight, It's and you get a chance to talk to a lot of different attendees, and you get one-on-one time with the speakers if that's what you're in for. And it's such a, a blast to go, and um, I just really love the vibe that they've got there at Code on the Beach. Yeah, so Code on the Beach is going to be August 7th through 9th. Um, it's going to be at the One Ocean Resort. And for you guys that have not registered yet, we actually have a special code for our listeners. It's AFTK, you know, just like away from the keyboard, AFTK, and you get $50 off your registration. So if you have not yet registered for this fantastic conference, you know, here's a little bit of incentive for you guys to, you know, to go ahead and, you know, save some money before you do. Yeah. And again, that's August 7th through 9th at Atlantic Beach, Florida, One Ocean Resort. Use the code AFTK, save yourself 50 bucks. So who are we talking to today, Richie? Today we're talking to Ray Bango. I love that name. Ray Bango. Ray Bango. That's awesome. (laughs) He's a Microsoft guy, and I really love to hear Ray talk. I think he's so full of wisdom. He's so insightful. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about his background there, Cecil? Sure. Yeah, Ray definitely comes to us with a lot of knowledge. So Ray is a lover of the web, and he's also an advocate for web standards. At Microsoft, he's focused on helping developers build awesome cross-browser experiences and being a feedback conduit for the community. He's also been privileged to be a member of the jQuery project team, which I think is pretty cool. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty that's awesome. awesome. So this episode was recorded on June 3rd, 2015, and here's our conversation with Ray Bengo. And now, away from the keyboard's feature conversation. You just give us a little bit of insight to to yourself and you know the kind of stuff that you work on sure and i appreciate you guys bringing me onto the show so um i am a developer advocate for microsoft i focus primarily on web standards uh web development uh i'd like to consider myself an advocate for the developer community making sure that they have a voice in the way that microsoft shapes its products and that uh that we're able to take that feedback and 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 offer offer tools and products that make a lot of sense to 
both developers and consumers. And ultimately, developers are the ones that are building the exciting experiences. And uh, it's important for Microsoft to get that feedback to make sure that they have good tools that will enable developers to build those great experiences. Um, and that's kind of where I, that's kind of where I come in. Uh, my background is has has been very heavily in open source. Uh, I was part of the jQuery project team for about five years. I was one of the original uh, founding members of the jQuery uh, team, and uh, I also worked at Mozilla for a little while as their add-ons community manager before coming over to Microsoft and being here well almost uh, five years now. So it's been a really great ride at Microsoft, and I've seen dramatic changes in the way that they're viewing web standards, uh, the way they're viewing the the web in general, their browser, of course, with the new Microsoft Edge browser. But I think what's been surprising is really the, the fundamental shift in terms of how they think about cross-platform. And uh, I, I never thought I'd see Office on an iPad, for example, which is kind of interesting. So it's exciting times, and uh, I think it's uh, opening up a lot of opportunities for everybody. Office on an iPad. That's so awesome. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Like it's, it's definitely a new face of Microsoft that we're seeing from everybody today. Like I know years ago in college when everybody was gun ho Linux, Fedora, you know, using SUSE, you know, Microsoft is the devil, right? And we don't want to do we use any of their products. And, and now it's a completely different company. Do you still feel people have a lot of that stigma that they used to before? Do you think it's getting a little better in the community or do you think it's very much of a, you know, we're the evil empire, you know, and we're trying to, you know, do bad things to people? I just came back from JSConf and it's interesting because the, I I didn't hear anything negative about Microsoft at all. And that's actually a very telling uh, type of scenario. It's, it's very interesting to see how, Developers are coming over, and, and, and I kid you not, they're literally saying, I love what Microsoft is doing now. And, and that's, that's, these are developers that I've known for many years. They're open source developers, and they've always walked a very fine line, especially because they know me for a long time. When I, and um, they tried, they've always tried to be very polite, but in a roundabout way, always making little digs about Microsoft and Internet Explorer and the web and stuff like that. Um, and for them just to come up and, and it, it pretty much ecstatically say, we love what you're doing. That's that's a very different mindset now. And I think um, what's happened is that Microsoft is not the dominant player, at least in the web. And that's a very – there's a lot of a lot of different players in in the world that are having a dramatic impact. And, you know, in from our perspective, we might only look at, you know, Microsoft, Google, and Apple and – and think, oh, these are the dominant players. But there's so many other areas where where Microsoft is trying to make inroads in. And there are other established key players there. So Microsoft is not the dominant the dominant force in a lot of different areas. So what that does is it forces us to think a little bit differently about how we're going to approach um, getting our foot into things like IoT, our browser, uh, and, and, and even in hardware and mobile, obviously. We need to rethink about the relationships that we have with the developer community. We need to rethink about the relationship we have with our partners and, of course, with the consumers to make sure that we're, we're meeting those needs. It's, it's incredibly competitive. The landscape has changed. Google is a force to be reckoned with. Apple, I mean, obviously, you know, one of the most valuable companies in the whole entire world. It's a very different time. So uh, back when you were in in college and you were thinking about Linux and stuff like that, sure, that was, there was probably a very dominant Microsoft at that point. And so 
lot of people viewed Linux as the alternative to that, but now it's in, now it's not the case. I mean, it's just not. And I, I actually love that. I love feeling a little bit like an underdog. I don't. I can't quite call Microsoft an underdog because it is a. It's still a very large and and a successful company. But I feel like we have we have ground to gain on some areas, and we we're fighting a good battle. So I think we're doing sure. good. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I think that uh, just goes to show that the difference between my generation and Cecil's generation. When I graduated in, in I think '96, Microsoft had a ton of exciting stuff, and everybody was going off and doing VB and and a whole bunch of other things, AS classic ASP and all that other good stuff. And I think by the time that Cecil got into college, it completely changed, which is really curious on how all that uh, kind of went down. Sure, and and so. Uh, you know, and I don't know how Cecil. I don't know when you were in college, but I'm assuming that you're fairly young from what from what from what Richie's making it sound. Um, and so I would <laughs> imagine that you grew up you grew up in the open source world, and that was a very big motivator for you. I mean, you mentioned Linux, so I'm I'm going along with those that that thought process. And so, for example, Richie mentioned 1996, and I'm even older than that. I was I graduated in in high school in 1986. So to me. Uh, I grew up in a world where Microsoft was what you used. Um, I grew up in a world where you worked in an enterprise and you had to pay software licenses and and you had these very complex, large-scale systems. And Microsoft was, believe it or not, a, only a small part of those large-scale systems because back then that's when you had mainframes and you had AS400 mid-range, mid-range servers. Uh, and the PC was simply a vehicle for you to get this data, this aggregated data, and do something with it. So, um, and open source wasn't something that was really heavily discussed in IT at that point. So, if you, when uh, when people have grown up in open source and have become accustomed to having high quality software that's freely available, it's obviously a very it's a very big shift. It's to some extent liberating, basically. And I understand that. I mean, that's that's how I felt with jQuery. The very first time I saw jQuery, and I I remember seeing jQuery and saying, "Wow, this JavaScript is this JavaScript library is amazing, and the things that I can do is great." And you know what? I don't have to pay a dime for it. That's a pretty yeah. liberating feeling. Yeah. And and Mozilla, and you know, working in Mozilla, of course, you work there, and you you don't have a profit motivation. You're trying to do what's right for the web. And again, it goes through the open source mindset. So I can understand why people that have have grown up uh, around that time frame and have continued to evolve around the open source community feel uh, that affinity for uh, having ultimate transparency and complete access to every bit of software. So I understand it. So I really like that you mentioned, and I want to segue into to your experience in the jQuery Foundation for a little bit. So you mentioned you're also one of the founding members of, of that group. So one of the things I'd really love to hear from you is, you know, how did you get so much passion for for the web, and, and how did you end up being a part of you know that the jQuery Foundation? I guess or the, you know that that initially founding jQuery group of people. Yeah, sure. So um, when I st- before starting the web, and I was doing as I mentioned enterprise development, and I was using a product called Power Builder, and I had been using Power Builder for I I, I can't remember off the top of my head; it's been so long, but probably. <laughs> No, easily I'm going to say five, somewhere between five and eight years or something like that. So it was, I had been using it for quite a long time and you get to the point where you're like, okay, I want to try something new. And the web was just coming out. 
And of course, at that time, you had classic ASP, and there were some other other servers out there. Of course, you had Perl and you know traditional CGI and things like that. But around that time, that's when a layer released Cold Fusion, and I got mm-hmm. really, really, really hot on Cold Fusion because it it reminded me a lot of the the way that I used to code client server apps on in the enterprise. Uh, it was a little bit obviously more hand coding, but it, uh, some of the some of the structures, especially like Building SQL clause within the markup and things like that was it reminded me a lot of the the days there, so I got really entrenched in that community and started. That's how I kind of you know cut my teeth on on web development um, and started just learning the fundamentals of HTML, getting involved with Cold Fusion, and eventually just continued on from there. And eventually, I got to the point, and I think it's around the 2005 timeframe, I'm going to say, where um, I was already starting to get bored with, with Cold Fusion because I wanted to try something different. Well, you know, you're, you're after after a while when you're doing the same thing over and over and over, it's like you 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 know you get the itch. I didn't want to abandon Cold Fusion. I just wanted to try a different aspect of web development. And and the the term AJAX had been coined, and I started looking at what AJAX was, and I was surprised because I AJAX was JavaScript, and I didn't know that. I didn't understand that. I actually bought a book on AJAX. It was called Head First AJAX. And when I'm reading through it, I'm like, this is JavaScript. And up to that point, I had used JavaScript for what most people do, which is sprinkling you know, dynamic stuff on pages, nothing fancy. And I was just really impressed by the fact that with Ajax, you can actually have that level of interactivity that was missing from the web. And so I set out to learn more about the JavaScript programming language from a true language perspective and how it can be incorporated into, into websites. And that's where... Uh, once I got in there, I started realizing there was obviously a lot of complexities involved, and I wanted to abstract a lot of the complexities of that. I didn't want to yep. have to deal with a lot of the DOM issues and stuff. And that's and I started looking at different libraries, and I looked at a bunch of them. I looked at OpenRICO and MokiKit and the Dojo Toolkit, and and you know the most popular one at that time was Prototype, and I looked at Prototype as well. But through every blog comment or little note that I saw on the internet, jQuery was consistently mentioned. And John Resnick had had released it, I think it was like six months to a year before, uh, and people kept raving about it. And so I, I got involved in that community and just answering questions and interacting with people on the on the news group and, or the mailing list. I'm sorry, it was a mailing list back then. And just trying to get get familiar with the, the, the library, the syntax of the library, the, how the community run, but also trying to be a good community advocate in the sense of, Helping everybody at any skill level and making sure that those who didn't want to help others understood that that wasn't acceptable within the community. And I think hmm. John Resnick saw that. And John wanted to formalize uh, a team. He wanted to come up with a formal structure for the jQuery project. And that's when he asked me to go ahead and lead the developer relations team for the jQuery team. That's how I became a part of that. And um, and so I continued. I kind of formed that, and and we did a lot of great stuff. I mean, we were, I think, the first JavaScript library to really proactively reach out to corporations and ask them, look, how do you, what what is it that we can help you out with so that you can formally embrace the jQuery project? Because I also knew that if you can get companies um, to embrace that, it makes the ability for web developers to get jobs that much easier. So I knew by getting corporations to, to get on board, by making sure that we had a good outbound communication structure and that we were responding to, to things in a timely fashion, 
that jQuery would continue to flourish because John and the team were incredibly talented on the JavaScript side. And so by combining both good developer advocacy with this world-class uh, JavaScript talent, it, it just made the project blossom. And it was great. It's still great. I love it. I mean, I, 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 I left the team in 2012 and I still, I still talk to my team, you know, my former teammates all the time. In fact, I'm heading out to jQuery San Francisco now this month to go ahead and speak at the conference. So it's great. It'll be the first time I've been to a jQuery conference in a while. So I'm very happy about that. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. I know for me, my, so my first, my first job out of college was probably 2008. And at that time, I never wanted to do web programming. I was completely not interested in working in the web. But at the time, that's the, technically the only job I could get, right? Everybody wanted a web developer, you know, ASP.NET or JSP or something like that. So, you know, I got a job doing ASP.NET, didn't know anything about it at all. You know, I picked up a book and, you know, for the first month or so, I was reading this book at work. And, you know, at some point, like, you know, we really needed to get, they wanted to do, you know, like those picture carousels, galleries that everybody wanted to do at the time. So I actually started looking at Prototype. Prototype was the first JavaScript library framework type thing, type deal I've ever used. And, and, you know, it was pretty good and it was pretty cool. And then a little bit after that, I started getting into jQuery and I was like, oh, this is fantastic. It's It's exactly what I needed. And I think from that point on, you know, every project that I had had jQuery in it. And, you know, probably in today's standards, probably wasn't a good idea. You know, I probably used it a lot more than I needed it to. But it was such an addictive experience mm-hmm. because the developer experience was was very pleasing. You know, and I think that's what's very important is that, you know, it's, it's really the, you know, the syntax is easy to read. It's really easy to get started with. And the productivity benefits were were fantastic. You know, um, so that's for, so for us. Yeah. Like we just we loved it. Yeah. So I don't think you. I don't think your your, your choice of using jQuery um, heavily was was a wrong choice. Um, the the key thing to remember is that jQuery solved a very important problem. It basically provided a, a, a great DSL for the DOM, and by abstracting those complexities, by making it easier for web developers to focus on the things that were important, which is building great features. Um, it, it it actually allowed you to be substantially more productive. Now, there's a give and take there. I mean, the other side of that is that if you don't fully understand what's going on under the hood of jQuery, then you're limiting your ability to really take your application to the next level. But in most right. cases, most developers really didn't need that. Uh, the other part is that you, in, in, in many cases, what ended up happening was you had a lot of great jQuery developers, which weren't really good JavaScript developers. And so what's mm-hmm. happening now is that um, when they start actually having to use the JavaScript language directly, that's where they they encounter a lot more challenges, a lot more um, difficulties in truly understanding how to implement things without the support of a, of a library. Now, again, it's it's a give and take. I mean, if your business is to create a solid web um, website, you know what? Use whatever is going to make you productive. I'm not going to sit here and preach to somebody and tell them you need to use JavaScript solely because you know what? That's not realistic. It's it's just not. Even with the most modern browsers right now, if you talk to anybody in the jQuery team, you'll see that the most modern browsers continue to have issues. And the reason that people continue to use libraries like jQuery or React or you know any number or underscore or low dash is because there's still issues that these libraries solve. It's not a bad practice to use a library. 
I think the concern that a lot of people have is when developers don't also try to make an effort to learn the actual underlying language. It's analogous to saying that I'm a Rails developer, but you have no understanding of the Ruby language. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I think, the, the best analog that I can give you. If you're, you can go out there and use generators to create some great, you know, some, some Ruby, some Rails stuff, and Rails makes that incredibly easy, but how do you want to take it to the next level? How, do you understand the underlying language that supports that framework? And that's where I think uh, there's been some kind of discontent and community concern, and that's why you're seeing a lot of advocacy now for just focusing on JavaScript. So... I think there there has to be a happy medium in there. Otherwise, libraries like React and Backbone and Angular and Ember wouldn't exist today. Sure. I know definitely for us, we definitely did the jQuery first route, right? Like, you know, if you look at it from a, the chicken and the egg perspective, I guess. So we, we jQuery was very much of a copy-paste type situation. You know, we, you know we're .NET developers. You know, we're working on, I think it was ASP.NET. Webforms too, like that version of it. It was a little while ago, and you know we weren't JavaScript developers. It was hey, okay, I can make this pretty carousel, right? Or we could do these modal pop-ups. Like everybody wanted a modal pop-up in their application, right? At some yeah. point, and, you know, after a while, it became okay. Hey, you know, we're running into some bugs. We're having some issues. You know, maybe we should actually take the time to learn JavaScript. And so one of the things that I, I do credit jQuery for was was definitely encouraging me to actually go and pay attention to the language. So, you know, I learned jQuery first and then I was like, okay, well, let's, let's learn JavaScript. And so for me now, I have a, like a, even that much more appreciation for like what it actually took to come up with this framework and, you know, some of the, you know, the better cases, how and when not to use it kind of thing. Right. And I think we have to give a lot of credit to, to guys like John Rezig and Dave Methven and Jiren Zafir and all these guys on the jQuery team that have that put a lot of effort into building a, building what is really the most popular JavaScript library even to this date. Um, and it's a testament to how useful the library was. You don't get to that level because your name is great or because you have a rock star developer team or whatever. You get it because of the usefulness of the of the product itself, the tool. In this case, jQuery was incredibly useful. And it made developers' lives substantially easier, and it continues to do that today till, till this day. So um, I, I still believe that if jQuery solves your problem, um, then use it. Because bottom line is, whatever you're building, you have to build your business. And if jQuery solves that for you and you're able to build your business and get your information or your service or your product out to your customers, to me, that's what matters. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just more business-minded in that sense. I know there's a lot of developers that, that try, to, they're a little bit more purist in thought and they want to, they want to focus on having great architecturally sound code, which, hey, that's great. I think if you can accomplish that by using something like jQuery, which is a solid library, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So I would, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I, I'm a supporter of either way, and I think it's, it's use what's best for your individual needs, not what the community is telling you you should do. Because ultimately, the community is full of opinions, basically. And that's not something that you should, you should go by. I think you need to go by what your actual business needs are. Agreed. So, Ray, you're a really passionate guy uh, for about evangelism and developer ad- developer ad- advocacy. <laughs> yeah, it's a tongue whatever twister, that word is. Tongue twister, <laughs> isn't it? Say that ten times. Advocacy. 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 Um, 
where, how did you become so passionate about uh, the topic? Uh, you know, it's, it's not so much that I'm passionate about developer advocacy per se. I'm passionate about being involved in the community. And so what ends up happening is because you have this passion for engaging with a community and sharing what you know and helping developers and solving problems with them and, and, and just being an enabler, the, the role of developer, of a developer advocate is a natural progression, a natural, natural spot for somebody like that to land in. I, I'm going to say that even early on in my, in my career, I was already a, I was already on the path to becoming a developer advocate. I I used to go to user groups and give presentations when nobody else wanted to. I used to run a power builder user group when nobody else wanted to. I formed it because it was important to me. I wanted to get engaged with the community. I wanted to talk with them and and share ideas. So it's something. It's not so much that I'm passionate about the role. I think it's just a natural fit for me, and so it makes it easier for me to do the things that I love, which is speaking with developers, going to events, and and being part of that crowd and understanding what everybody's thinking about and sharing ideas. I love public speaking. I really do. I love going out there and, and engaging with large scale communities. I, you know, I, I know that I've done presentations at local user groups like yours, Richie, and so. That's just a natural part of me. It's a natural part of my being, and and so I'm very fortunate that Microsoft allows me to do it, um, and they let me do it remotely because, in many cases, the jobs at Microsoft require you to move to Redmond, something that I couldn't do. And uh, I'm because of this role, I have flexibility to be able to go out to conferences, write about things that are important to me, engage in social media, and the internet has enabled that for me. If it was, I'm going to say, if it was 15. You know, years ago, I probably would not be able to do this job right now because I don't think I'd have the tools needed to do this remotely. I'd have to move someplace else. So for people that are considering becoming a developer and evangelist, mm-hmm. you know, like what are, what are some of the things or some of the, the traits you think they need to go down that career path? Sure. So um, to be clear, and uh, I'm going to kind of clarify the evangelist versus advocate kind of moniker. The, the role is the same, but the description or the term used to describe the role is, is there's a subtlety to it. So evangelism actually has a negative connotation. And so uh-huh. when a lot of – no, and it's okay. It's just it, when you think about an evangelist, you're thinking about somebody, somebody who is preaching blindly for a specific thing. Yeah. Um, and that's not what me and many of my peers are. My, we're – when you hear somebody call themselves a developer advocate, it's because they truly are somebody who wants to advocate for the community. They want to be the, the eyes and ears. They want to listen and, and make sure that the feedback of the community is getting back to the right person. They, you know, they, they want to be the feedback conduit. Um, and when you listen to me speak at events or if you hear me at, you know, within a user group talking in, within a crowd – you're, you rarely hear me really pushing Microsoft products. I, I I focus more on what is the problem that a person has and what's the right solution to fixing that problem. And in some cases, yeah, Microsoft products are the best possible solution, and I will always advocate for that if I can. But in many cases, there are other products that are great solutions. For example, if somebody says, hey, you know, um, I really need some awesome browser developer tools and which is the best one, I would probably say right now that Either the Chrome developer tools or the Firefox developer tools have the broadest set of features for web developers. 
because both of those companies have done a fantastic job of providing that. And I know that Microsoft has a great set of features as well. They're continuously evolving those features, and they have a couple things that would be better to add in there, and so I know the team is working on that. But for those are things that, as a genuine developer advocate, somebody who has to be genuine with the community, you know, you have to have those those hard conversations, and you have to admit where a competitor is doing something better than you. You have to, you can't be afraid to do that, and I'm not. I, uh, you'll see me on social media. There are a lot of times when I congratulate folks at Google. Rob Dotson, who's one of the mm-hmm. team members of Polymer, well, they just released version 1.0, and I tweeted out them, and I wished them congratulations because I thought it was a great achievement. Polymer is is a fantastic achievement, and I, I wanted to make sure that he got kudos for that. So as a developer advocate, you need to you need to be genuine in that sense. So to answer your question, though, about if somebody wants to head down that path and get there, I think the first thing that they need to do is they kind of need to internalize whether they're okay with actually engaging with the community. Do you know how to have civil discourse with the community? Do you know how to engage with them in a way that is understanding, empathetic, sympathetic, and do you have the skill sets, the te- technical skill sets, to also be part of that conversation? I think those are those are key factors in it, and there's obviously a whole lot more to it. Uh, but the biggest thing for me is making sure that you have the ability to be able to communicate effectively, not only online, but in public. You need to be able to go out there and speak with developers face-to-face. If you're not comfortable in that situation because, let's say, you're introverted, that's going to be a very difficult situation for you to be placed in. Um, it's, you, you know, I, what was it Scott Hanselman told me one time, and Scott was my former manager at Microsoft, he says, I have to go, I have to go shake hands and kiss babies. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's what he said. And, you know, it's true. I mean, and when you're a developer advocate, you have to go out there and you have to speak with developers. You have to shake their hands. You have to listen to them. You have to spend time understanding what they're trying to do and how you can help them out. And the bottom line is there's, you need to listen. You need to be able to be a good listener, and then you need to figure out how you can enable them to solve their problems. But you have to – face-to-face is really important. So um, that's kind of what I look at. you know. Um, and if you're a public speaker, that's, that's, a, that's a really big help. If you're able to step on stage in front of 50, 100, 500, 1,000 people, that's a, that's a really good skill. If you're able to convey a good message to that type of crowd, you've, you're in a good position. How do you maintain that level of, of professionalism um, and kind of protect the Ray Bango identity as well as making sure that Microsoft isn't embarrassed at the same time? <laughs> you know, it's, 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 um, it's not that hard if you, really, um, if you really appreciate the people that you're talking to. And part of, the, and I think this is where some people forget. Uh, I don't know if it's because I'm a little bit older and I didn't grow up with social media as my main medium for communication, or texting, or things like that, or Snapchat. I grew up in, a, I grew up during a time where you actually had real conversations, um, and you either had to pick up the phone and call somebody if you wanted to talk to them, or you had to meet them someplace and sit down and actually talk. You had to meet them face to face. So, um, so understanding those situations, having good situational awareness, and having a, a good set of boundaries and a good level of respect for 
the people in the community is critical to making sure that for all intents, you don't stick your foot in it. That's, that's what you're saying. Yeah. And, um, you have to respect the people and it's not always easy because in some cases you're going to have people that are going to be really upset with you. I mean, Cecil, to your point, you mentioned about the Microsoft being the evil empire. Um, the number of times that I've heard that it, you know, you have to have a thick skin. I remember that I, I was, I was in Chile giving a presentation and mind you, there was a lot of great speakers there. So here's uh, Stephanie Sullivan. She gets a uh, you know standing ovation. Here's Robert Nyman, uh, who was I think he was at Mozilla at that time. Gets obviously a massive standing ovation because Chile was very pro Mozilla. And here's Ray Bango. Mind you, I'm the one who helped get these very influential speakers to come to the event. I step on stage and say, hi, I'm Ray Bango of Microsoft, and the booze started coming in. Oh. oh. <laughs> okay. Oh. And it was – and, you know, you had to kind of I, – I could have gotten very upset with it, but I had to kind of take a step back and understand why they were feeling that way and, and not personalize it and understand that um, there's a lot of hard feelings about Microsoft. And especially in a community that's very centric towards Mozilla. And you had I had to kind of go with it and just basically turn around and saying, you know, listen, it's okay. <laughs> you know, it's we're not we're not bad. And I said it in Spanish, which I think helped bridge that a little bit. Nice. You know, it kind of I think people were taken aback by the fact that I spoke in Spanish. So they were like, <laughs> Oh, okay, he speaks Spanish. And and that helped to calm it down, but it was representative of what a developer advocate could experience. Especially with a company like Microsoft, where um, they did have a very hard reputation, like a like a perception issue, and especially Internet Explorer had a, a very bad perception issue. So you have to have a thick skin. You have you can't personalize things, but sometimes you do have to go to battle for for the company you're representing. And I will do that. I absolutely will go to battle for Microsoft because I wouldn't be at Microsoft if I felt that the company wasn't doing the right things. Um, and bottom line is, it is a corporation, so it's a for-profit corporation. So they, you know, they want to make revenue, but that doesn't mean that I have to be a shill for them. And then there right. are some really, there are really some great things that Microsoft has done, and so I will advocate for them. The new browser that we have is is great. It's amazing. It's it's such a departure from old IE, and. Um, I, I will certainly advocate for it because I'm very proud of what the Internet Explorer slash Microsoft Edge team has done. They have done a fantastic job, and they're really trying to make it a, a fantastic standards-based browser. One of the things I've always wondered, since you're a developer advocate, developer advocate, <laughs> okay, I'm guessing you probably get to to travel a lot, and I'm sure you've seen tons of you know different places and interesting you know interact with a lot of interesting people. Yep. You know, what's some of your favorite places that you've you've said you've visited so far? And you know, where's like some of the most interesting developer communities that you've been a part of or visited? Sure. Well, um, there's a lot of them, and I and I find them all incredibly um, awesome in their own unique way. Uh, and and I'll probably get some some flag for this, but honestly, to me, the uh, of all the trips that I've taken, the developer community that I found most passionate, and and it, and it floored me their level of passion was the Chilean community. Uh, when I flew to StarTech Conf, this is the, con the conference I was just talking about, I was, I was just floored by how passionate they were about 
web development and and how gracious they were as hosts and how truly interested they were in in listening to what this this fantastic lineup of speakers had to say about web development. They just genuinely wanted to learn and they embraced it and they took it all in and they did everything possible to make every speaker feel like they were royalty. And mind you, I mean, these a lot of these speakers they go out there and you know they go to different events and they're treated well. But I, I every one of the speakers I spoke to felt like this this particular group of developers, this community went above and beyond to make them feel special. Mm. And and that left a lasting impression on me. It's and it's not to diminish any other community. Every community I've ever gone to, thankfully, has been great. But that left a lasting impression on me. And I was very fortunate, and mind you, my wife is Chilean, and so I was able to take them with me as well. And it, it just kind of – it was good to be able to go there and see for the very first time what Chile was about and then to see that they were so passionate about web development. It left – it just really left a lasting impression on me. You know, that's one of the, the things that um, I would really love to see communities embrace more is just a, a passion – for technology and not just for arguing <laughs> mm-hmm. and and being really adversarial. Um, what are the, the types of things that we can do as community members to kind of prevent those kind of uh, adversarial um, flame wars, for lack of a better word? Well, if it's within the same community, the first thing that I think everybody has to remember is that you have a human on the other side. So if you're not meeting face-to-face, the, you're more likely to immediately react without really thinking through about what you're saying or how it impacts the feelings of somebody on the other side. That's, to me, the one of the biggest reasons that we have so many flame wars. It's social media um, and online mediums in general have kind of – they've taken the, the personal aspect of communication out of the equation. So – and if I didn't know you, I could just look at your picture and, you know, just assume he's just, a, you know, some dude and I'm going to and I'm going to flame him. Right. And that's not the way it should be. You, it's something that generally most people would not do in person. In fact, I've had that situation where I, I've, I've been flamed online and then I meet the person at a conference and the person is totally different. <laughs> Very nice, and but this person, you know, a, um, a couple months before had really flamed me really nicely, you know, and um, <laughs> it's it's things like that 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 spark those issues. The other part is though is that we have to respect everybody's skill levels. Some people are going to make suggestions based on their current skill levels, which may not be the same as yours. You may be incre- substantially farther along. For example, right now, if I wanted to get into the .NET world, well, I think I'm, I'm a noob. I've never coded in .NET, even though I work at Microsoft. My, my background was web development using more open source tools. So if I made a suggestion to you, Richie, and then based on your countless years in the Microsoft stack, you flame me, that's not really fair. Right. I think people have to understand that as you progress in your career and you become much better, the better way of looking at things is that you become a mentor to new people coming in. And if, if you're able to switch your mindset from saying, look at this newbie, he doesn't know what he's doing, to, you know, this person here is maybe, maybe I can change the way they think about that and offer them best practice based on my 5, 10, 15 years of experience, 
to do better code, that person will look up to you down the road. And I know that I've I've done that. There, John Resic has changed my life. I look up to John, and I and, and I know that I will always ping John if I have a question. And so, the day that we start thinking more in terms of a mentor uh, student type of relationship where we can guide new people along and respect them, or the day that we can um, we can remember that we have humans on the other side and that we shouldn't we need to remember that our words matter. I think that's when we'll have less flame wars and more uh, more proper discourse. I really like that point you made about having mentors to look up to. You know, as I was going through different jobs, it's one of the things that I really looked at was, you know, can I go to this new place and be around people that are, are smarter than me, people that I can learn from and, you know, people that I could also help to. And it's, you know, it's, it's a mutual exchange. You know, you learn from me, I learn from you, and we both grow and we both get better from it. Right. And I think today there's, you know, a lot more coders coming out than they were before. So, and I might be wrong about this, but if you look at the, the landscape, you're definitely going to find more developers between the under six years of development experience, you know, pool, then you're going to find in the 15, 20, 30 year pool, you know? Um, so like, who do these young guys look up to? You know, like how do they, how do they learn about the mistakes of the past and not repeat them again? Or are they just going to say, Hey, well, you know, I kind of did this thing. It kind of works. I'm just going to keep doing it because there's nobody here to tell me otherwise. And that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because I think here's another part of it as well. So one of the things that I've kind of been concerned about is, um, is with ageism. I just turned 47. And so I'm obviously substantially older than a lot of the new new guys coming into the field now, which is great. You know, it's 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 just evolution. You know, it's like uh, people grow old and they move on and a new breed comes in. But yeah. what I've seen happen in a lot of cases is that um, the new breed coming in, because there's so much information out there, they're able to get up to speed very quickly. And in many cases, sometimes they're great. Some, because of the amount of information out there and free courses and stuff like that, they become very competent developers very quickly. And because they feel that level of confidence, because of all the readily available information, their desire to seek a mentor or even in many cases respect developers who have a little bit more experience on them or years on them has actually gone down. And I'm not, I don't want to generalize this because I don't think it's everybody. It, it's, I've just seen some of those things happen where um, – you know, just reading experiences from developers who were a little bit older and they're not getting the same consideration because they're not, you know, a 20-something who doesn't have a family and wants to pump code for 16 to 20 hours a day. Right, right. So it, it's, it's a weird vibe. So I think there's there has to be a dual thing here where the new guys come in, the coming in, I think also need to have a certain level of respect for the, the folks who ha- have – put in a lot of effort to lay the foundation for the things that they're learning now. And um, I was I was speaking to somebody about that where just recently, it was last week, where a lot of the reasons that we see so much progress in the JavaScript world, it's not because the new students coming in and the new breed coming in are that much smarter than the old breed. It's just that the old breed laid down a very solid foundation and laid down so much information and provided so much information that, in my opinion, now it's easy for the new breed to come in 
and just ramp up very quickly and and they can start driving some new patterns and some new ideas. So I guess the point I'm making is that it's important to acknowledge the contributions of developers before you and respect those contributions and respect the people who have been around for a while. Yeah, it's kind of like what your parents used to tell you before, right? Like, it was kind of like respect your elders. Exactly. You know, a little bit. Yeah. But it's just from the perspective of, hey, you know, I appreciate your skill and I know what you're talking about. You know, so let's 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 respectfully, you know, both ideate over this problem and see, you know, where we can meet in the middle, or you know, what's what's really the best solution for for the problem we're trying to solve? Because at the end of yeah. the day, we're all trying to solve a problem, right? It's not about I'm better than you or you're better than me. It's about how can we provide you know the best solution for you know this issue that we have in front of us right now. The key thing is you just can't call me old. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sure. Don't call sure, me old. Sure. You don't look a day over 39. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. You just won the practice. <laughs> you know, going back to the history, I really wish that we had more of a focus of history on where we came from as far as software development is concerned. I, I just think there's a lot of stuff that have seemed like it's been lost. And I really wish that there was, you know, somebody would come out and write like the the de facto uh, novel or or historical book on you know where we've been for from a historical perspective as software development. Sure, and, and and a lot of that information is already on the internet in some fashion. It's just a matter of somebody taking the time to aggregate it out there, and it's it's a it would be a massive book. It would yeah. just be huge, yeah. basically. But I, I'm I'm very grateful for the people who laid the foundation before me. Um, you know, in fact, one of my one of my teammates, Aaron Gustafson, was one of those people. He was part of the WASP project, Web Application Standards Project, and oh, okay. uh, he was one of the advocates that actually helped to push web standards and lay that foundation. So, even though he's, you know, he's, I get the I get the benefit of working with him and um, and and benefiting from his knowledge and his skills. So I'm very very glad that somebody like him did so much legwork to make my life easier. And I'm hoping that as new developers come in, they don't forget that because it's too easy to say, you know, I've, I've learned this JavaScript stuff and, yeah, this is library or here's Bootstrap or here's whatever. Uh, it's, it's more than that. It's understanding that there's a lot of work and thought that's gone into all these different things that have been built. And yep. you're able, now able to take that and, and build upon that and expand your knowledge to create even better things or the next generation library or the next generation framework, you, you know, that's, it's appreciating the work that's been done before you, you know? Yep. Do you think that we could somehow talk Charles Petzold into writing this book? <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that to you. <laughs> I think I'm just going to start begging him. I, I think that will, please. <laughs> So I believe it was last year at Code on the Beach, Charles actually did, I don't know if it was a keynote, but he, he did a talk. It was, it was a really fantastic talk. It was, I think it was on analog computing. Yeah, something like that. I believe it was something like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and, and the one thing I remember from, from that uh, keynote was that he explained calculus in five minutes, which took me a year to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. And I, and I, I think everyone, he got a, just a pure standing ovation at the end of that, just, just for that alone, just breaking down the calculus in, into, which is really easy 
to understand. And um, it was masterful. And uh, yeah, definitely go check it out uh, on YouTube. It's definitely worth a, worth a watch. So, you know, just before we wrap up, what I really want to get from you though, Ray. So tell us some of the things that you do when you're away from the keyboard. Uh, let's see. I try to spend time with my family. Um, that's, that's important. That's the key thing. Uh, I have uh, I have five children, uh, three older ones that I, I rarely see now because after they got into their teen years, they're very too busy for dad. Um, typical stuff. Uh, but I have two younger mm-hmm. ones, one that's seven, uh, that's my daughter, and my son, who is three. So I get to spend a lot of time with them and enjoy their time. And um, in terms of hobbies, uh, scuba diving is my hobby. And while, wow. Yeah, and so I... I love doing that. Uh, in fact, I'm going for a dive now on Saturday. And um, it, it's, I don't get to do it as much as I'd like, simply because every sure. weekend is fi- every weekend is tough to, to – every, every weekend is filled with things that uh, children need to do, whether it's a birthday party right. or some kind of event. So it's kind of hard to balance that out. But right. when the summer comes around, it's, that's when I usually kick into, into diving gear. And it, it's, it's nice. It's, it's relaxing to be under the water and not have to worry about anything and – it's cool. What so are some what of your the favorite you go to? dive spot? Oh, yeah, I got you, Cecil. <laughs> ah, bastard. Go ahead. Say that again. <laughs> go get it, Cecil. So we were both trying to ask you at the same time. <laughs> What's okay. some of your favorite diving spots that you like to go to? Uh, diving spots? Yeah, your diving um, spots. So I typically dive off of Pompano Beach. Sometimes I dive off of Fort Lauderdale. Depends. Um, you know, there's... There's the J. Scuddy uh, tugboat, which is really nice. My favorite dive, at least in this area, is the Mercedes. It's about, oh, I was going to say about 110 feet to the floor, but it's just absolutely gorgeous. It's one of the best wrecks that I've gone. Uh, the absolute best wreck that I've gone diving in was the Spiegel, was the Spiegel, no, the Duane, uh, the Duane over in Key Largo, which was about 110 feet of water, and that was just an amazing dive. Uh, it was nice. It was beautiful, and so... Uh, in terms of dive spots, that's that's where I've gone for right now. Hopefully, um, hopefully I'll be able to go to the Caribbean. I'd like to do some diving in the Caribbean over there, and uh, see some some changes. But Key West is really Key Largo is really where I like to go when I when I'm able to do it. It's just that when you go to Key Largo, you have to know that it's going to be an all day thing because you have to get up early. It's going to take you an hour and a half to get down there at least from at least from where I live, and then you have to know that driving back. So it's it's. It's a go. It's it's absolutely awesome. So I'm guessing. Did you ever get a certified? Are you Patty certified or Patty certified? I should say. Me? Yeah. Oh Can yeah. You get, no. You get certified when you go diving, right? Did you get your Patty yeah. certification or anything? My certification, I got it a long time ago. So I got, actually got certified in 1989, and um, okay. it was through an organization called NASDS, National Association of Scuba Diving Schools, which is no longer around. Um, it was actually uh, all the certifications were acquired by SSI, which is Scuba Schools International. So that's where I got my advanced open water. So I, I was certified for quite a long time. And then uh, I'm going to say probably around two years ago, I decided that I wanted to dive a couple of deep wrecks. But the only way that you can do that is to, be, to get your advanced open water certification. So I took the course and I became certified to, uh, as an advanced open water diver. So it's it's yeah. nice. It it gives you a little bit more liberties. You and I think once you become an advanced uh, open water diver, you take you take diving a little bit more seriously. You understand the inherent risks of it, 
when you first get certified as a diver, then this, I've seen this because I went through this and I've seen this through other people. You don't appreciate some of the complexities of scuba diving. You take it for granted that it's just a matter of strapping on a tank, putting in a regulator in your mouth, and dropping into the water and go. And, you know, if you're diving in, in very shallow waters, I think a lot of people just take it for granted that it can shoot up, but there's complexities in there. I mean, you, you can suffer some really bad issues in, in, as, you know, in as shallow as 10 feet of water if, you, if you're not careful. Um, and so when you want to dive deeper and you want to get down to 70, 80, 90 feet, if I'm at 90 feet and something happens and I'm not prepared, you know, 90 feet is a long way up. You know, if, if, if you've ever gone scuba diving, think about 30 feet. And when you look up, that's a pretty big, you know, pretty far distance. 90 feet is a pretty, pretty big swim. It's when you have no air and you've been down there for a period of time. So you have to be careful with that. So, so I've been swimming for, for years, you know, since probably since as long as I've known myself. And, you know, it was only when I was a teenager, I really started swimming competitively. And I, you know, I swam for a while in Antigua, you know, up until I came up here for college. But one of the things I've always wanted to do was go scuba diving. You know, like I've, I've, you know, I've done competitive swimming. I played water polo a little bit for a little while. Um, but I never actually braved the, the waters, right, to actually go diving. Like we used to dive without tanks, but, you know, that's okay. definitely not. That's not 190 feet or anything like that, right? Like it's no snorkeling. Very, yeah, very shallow, you know, spearfishing type deal in the Caribbean. Sure. Um, sure. But um, I definitely love to to get into it. So, um, just before we go, like, do you have any recommendations or places that you could tell our listeners, you know, hey, if you're interested in getting involved in scuba diving, you know, here's some websites or you know some places that you could go check out. Sure, I would say um, find a very reputable local dive shop. Uh, so, for example, in, in Broward County, I, I always recommend Pompano Dive Center, which is – they're great. They're, uh, they're Patty Five Star, and I, the instructors are really solid. They have their own boat, which is professionally run. I've, I've had nothing but great experiences with them. Uh, and in Miami, um, Underwater Unlimited is actually run by my very first instructor, uh, the one I got certified by in 1989. And to me, he is – he is the epitome of a dive instructor. He is, uh, he's fantastic. I would recommend them to anybody, and that's Underwater Unlimited. And I think they're, they're in Coral Gables, if I remember. So, uh, but go there, and the key thing is, it doesn't matter where you're going to get certified at the end of the day, um, as long as you know that the instructor is somebody that's really good. That's the key thing. Interview your instructor. And make sure you feel a sense of confidence that, one, that they know what they're talking about, and two, that they're going to run you through a very thorough course because ultimately when you get under the water, you, you don't want to try to solve problems. You don't want to, have to try to remember things or solve problems when you're underwater. You want to have forethought, and you want a teacher who's going to give you the training to really think through your dive and plan it out so that you can minimize the number of issues you might have underwater. And thankfully, I've had that in both cases in my first open water course, which was Charlie Matthews of Underwater Unlimited, fantastic instructor, and he prepared me to go scuba diving. He prepared me for my very first dive, uh, and I felt 100% confident that I can complete my dive when I finish this course. And then uh, my second dive, again, I had a great instructor, Captain Pete. He was great, and he prepared me for the advanced open water aspects of diving, and I felt comfortable when I did my very first very deep dive. 
So that's that's important. Just interview your instructor and make sure that you you have the sense of confidence that you're going to get value and that that person is going to really think about really think that your life matters. Because again, no matter whether you're in 30 feet of water or 100 feet of water, you're still very deep, and you have to be careful. You have to make sure you have the skills necessary to be able to to manage that environment. It was really great talking to Ray. We want to thank him for coming on the show and sharing his valuable insight. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com or on Twitter at AFTK Podcast. You can subscribe to the show via the website or on iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, you can comment and rate us. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up to our newsletter where you'll get behind-the-scenes access to Away From The Keyboard. Next week on Away From The Keyboard, we'll have a conversation with Matt Mahaney. So you could go home now. Bye. We're done. Go away. Don't, no, don't, no, no, not like that. No, I know, I didn't mean to make you cry. Here, here's some tissue. Wipe your eyes a little bit. See you next week. to thank you for listening to Away From The Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego! House of Cards and and uh, yeah, that's Call of true. Duty. Using the last yeah, Call what's of up Duty. With that? Yeah, I didn't. You which I didn't play. Yeah, I haven't. I don't have time. I, I, I don't have time for games. You, you know, the only game that I have been playing that I completely blame you for this. Spider Man Unlimited. You, Spider Man Unlimited. See, that game is fantastic. Oh my gosh, dude! It, it's not like the gameplay is that great because it's not. It's about the, the the story and the characters you collect and the cards and. You know. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I don't think the story is that great either. Um, I want to say the story, I, like you, those those characters you collect. I love. I love just collecting the, the the cards. Yeah, I think that's more it. You know, it's it's getting the different kind of Spider Men, and and leveling them up and getting to the next point. And then, uh, if it wasn't for the events, I would have stopped playing long ago. Yeah, there's Marvel but Unlimited it, too, but I haven't played that one very much. Part, what's Marvel Unlimited? It's the same thing with cards. It's a. It's, is it is it a uh, free runner? It's a. It's not a free runner. It's like a, it's just a card game. You know, oh. I mean, it's like um, um, like you're playing Dungeons and Dragons or something. You know, what I mean? like it's oh, it's like okay, turn-based card game.
Mm. Yeah. So, but, but yeah, that's that's Spider-Man. I mean, I have, I have way too many stuff. That's all I've been like. If I get a free, you know, five minutes or so, I'll I'll, I'll play one real quick, and then, and, and and they're really smart about how they get you to use the currency in the game. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just ridiculous. Um, there was an offer that came up not so long ago. They wanted me to spend thirty bucks on like two special legendary cards and a thousand of the currency and this and this and the ranking up and all that stuff. And I'm like, dude, I'm gonna tell you, I'll tell, I'll be honest with you, they do a good job at that because sometimes I'm like, ah, I want to buy it, I want to buy it. Uh, well, it, you know, it's it's, like, it's oh, getting, it's it, I know it's getting those characters that I haven't gotten yet, like, and I really want like Spider Gwen. You know, like I, I, I haven't even sniffed her yet, and um, I finally got Miles Morales, right? Mm-hmm. But he's he's so, and I need another. I need more to rank him up, right? So he's actually seem so to get two of them useful. Yeah, yeah, and he's not. It's like okay, so I need another three of them, so he's actually useful, and I'll actually get some, you know, points for him. It's it's such a scam. Yeah. And I keep playing. What's cool <laughs> just too is that um like so I had a friend that played the game. So if you connect your friends, you guys could trade um characters, which is pretty Oh, we should we should totally do that. Yeah. And so, so that makes it that much more interesting too, because now it's not even just you, it's like you and you know, it's just like you know, you and your boys, like you trade baseball cards or whatever, like you can trade these Spider Man characters. All right, I've got I got a bunch of characters, so if anyone's listening and wants to hook up with me, I'm at J-O-R-R-I-S-S. <laughs> Let's hook up. Let's friend. And I'll give you a whole bunch of stuff. Like, just for you. You listening right now. Yeah, yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> just you. Just you. But yeah, you can get tons of stuff. You can get um, characters or you can get currency, too, if you want. Um, yeah, I've been... Um, i just been collecting... I think it's... The, their ranking is legendary is the top and epic. So those are the only cards that I've been uh, collecting. And what I found is that now my multiplier or my, um, I, I guess what they call it, the total ranking that you have or whatever is so high. It's like, it's hard for me to progress now in the episode, in the episodes because it's, because it takes me so long just to to level up to the get to the point to where I could actually play the next episode, right? right? The next mission. Right. So it's like, oh, I think I did this wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like I'll, I'll I'll get one mission done, and then it's another two weeks before I could actually get to the level. Yeah. So I could play the next one. Yep. Yep. Like it's what I'll do in, in that situation sometimes is that sometimes I'll just sacrifice like. A couple Spider Man, just to, just to get through it. Oh, just to level up. Yeah, just to level up because it's like, like, how long am I really gonna wait? Yeah, well, I'm not spending money on it. Yeah, exactly. I, I spent I spent money once, and that was to get uh, Miles Morales. That was it. Right, 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 right. Yeah, man. I just you know, just dash it up, like just <laughs> sacrifice two or three of them, and call it a day. Yeah, I have over fifty. I, I have I have a problem. Hi, my name's Richie Rumpin. I'm a Spider Man Unlimited addict. And I feel so bad because I used to be like a hardcore gamer, right? You know, it's like Call of Duty, Halo. 
I mean, you know, AAA titles, and I was shooters, man, I was it, you know. I have a, a, a jacket that's an Xbox 360 jacket. Uh-huh. has my gamer tag on the back, right, that I got at a uh, gamer tag radio event that Microsoft, actually Microsoft threw the party, but it was a whole bunch of gamer tag radio folks, and I somehow just was able to, to crash it. And get in, and they gave me my gamer tag, a jacket with my gamer tag, and Xbox 360 on it. I'm like, I am hardcore gamer, man. I don't need anything else, man. I just need my shooters. And I'm playing. Only thing I play now is free running Spider-Man. Well, the thing about so those scary. games is that it's so easy to just pull out your phone. You play for like yeah five minutes and put it back in your pocket and go back to watch. Yeah, versus I don't have exactly. to put up the console. I got to start up the game. Right now, like load times are the most annoying thing to me. <laughs> so I have, um, so I play NBA 2K on the, on oh, the Xbox, yeah. and the load times in that game, it's it's either I'm just really impatient, or those load times are ridiculous. Now we need to bring back uh, EA Big and NBA Street. That's what we need. There you go, some NBA Jam, some Oski Oskis. It's the JUIs. Yeah, those games were those games are fantastic. I think we just created our bonus track. Oh, you're recording this? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Alright, there we go. Bonus track. He's bonus, on actually, fire. He's on fire. <laughs> <laughs>